Hey everybody, this is episode 126 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you on Mother's Day from Austin, Texas. So first of all, I have to give a shout out to all the moms out there. Certainly appreciate the moms in my life and appreciate all those moms that are doing their best out there to support those around them. And so before we jump to our interview guest today, and we'll be interviewing one of our coaches, Brent Stein, who was recently on the Austin Runners Club episode, talking about his training approach as a coach, his training principles as a coach. I wanted to do some mom shout outs quickly relative to current events that have been happening and some things you need to be made aware of as running fans. First couple of shout outs I want to give to moms out there would be a shout out to moms Kara Goucher and Alicia Montano, who were both featured in a New York Times article by Lindsay Krause today talking about how hard it can be as a mom to have a contract, a sports sponsorship contract, especially with a company like Nike. Both of them talked about how their pay went essentially to zero when they were pregnant and that they had to made s- make some choices about what to do post-pregnancy that were driven by their contract that they might not have liked or regretted. And so there in the article was a call for pregnancy and equality or for pregnancy to be considered in the context of those sporting contracts and of course for the equality that would come with that. So I want to give a shout out to those two moms, Kara and Alicia, for being brave enough to tell their side of the story there and to hopefully make a difference in the lives of moms who might be coming on their journey as an elite athlete. Now I will say that it's not necessarily the case that all companies think about this the wrong way because Stephanie Bruce also tweeted today her sympathies for Kara and Alicia, but also that her two sponsors during her pregnancies, originally Wazell and Hoka, actually supported her in ways that her pay was not reduced during those pregnancies. And so she wanted to make the point that some companies are progressive when it comes to this topic and that's great, but I think the, the major point here is that there's more to be done and that every sh- every company should do their best to support women through pregnancy, support parents through that time in their, li- in their children's lives so that they don't have to make tough decisions between their family and their livelihood and their work as athletes. So I'll link to that New York Times article in the show notes, but I would highly encourage you to check that out and... And of course, give Kara and Alicia a follow if you haven't already, because it's brave of them to tell their stories. So those are the first couple of shout outs. Also, I have to give a shout out to Stephanie Bruce, who I just mentioned, because she collected her second U.S. championship in the last 12 months, winning the U.S. half marathon championships in Pittsburgh. Of course, Stephanie is a mom of two boys. And she is inspiring for a lot of reasons in addition to being a mom, but giving her a shout out, especially because she's a mom today. And she dispatched Sarah Hall and Emma Bates, who got second and third in the race. It was a pretty tight three-woman race until the very end, and then Stephanie Stephanie pulled away in the final mile 
to win handily. So kudos to Stephanie for that. Kudos also to second place finisher and mom of four adopted daughters, Sarah Hall, who got second only a month after Boston. Really, really impressive for those two. For Stephanie's sake, this is certainly inspiring. And as I've mentioned many times, I think she's got a shot to make an Olympic team either in the marathon or the 10K. So she is one to watch. Sarah certainly has a shot as well, especially in the marathon. And so that's two moms that you can root for in the next 12 months on the journey to Tokyo. Then that same weekend, got to give a shout out to Stephanie Bruce's teammate, Kellen Taylor, who ran a 226 marathon in Prague to finish fourth place there and earn the coveted Olympic tri- or Olympic marathon standard. And so she now becomes one of a handful of women who have that standard. It was a tough race for her. She made a bold move to go out with the leaders, ran through the first half and 111, finished slowing down a bit in the second half in 115 to finish in 226 after going out maybe a little bit too fast a little bit too hot as as her coach said that was a little bit faster than planned but still she got fourth place which is solid in Prague on a fast course there and of course got that Olympic standard which we don't know we still don't know how the rules will play out as it relates to the Olympic trials next February in terms of who can make an Olympic team. And so that Olympic standard is a coveted one. Kellen now has secured it. Kellen, of course, is a mom too. She has a nine-year-old daughter and incidentally is also in training to become a firefighter in addition to training to be a runner at the top of the sport. So huge shout out to Kellen Taylor. Congrats on that Olympic standard. Finally, we've got to give another shout out to mom, Sarah Hall, who followed up the second place in the U.S. half champs to six days later, getting second place in the U.S. 25K champs. Again, just all about four to five weeks after running Boston. Sarah got second to Emma Bates this time, who won the 25K championships this weekend. Really, really impressive to, to do that kind of turnaround and, and not only to come back that quickly after Boston, but to get second in two U.S. road champs, half marathon and 25K, only six days apart, shows how gritty Sarah Hall is. And so shout out to her, incidentally, also in that 25K champs, local Cedar Park product, Parker Stenson got the win on the men's side in a U.S. 25K record. So congrats to him as well. But again, celebrating those moms out there for doing their thing today. So again, shout out to Kara Goucher, Alicia Montano, Kellen Taylor, Sarah Hall, Steph Bruce. You are all inspirations. And there are so many others that I haven't mentioned. So hats off to all the moms out there. With that, we're going to jump to our interview with Brent Stein. Again, he's one of our coaches, now works for us full time as a program and curriculum director for us. He's going to talk to me about his coaching philosophy, and we're also, as a part of that discussion, going to be bringing in examples from athletes that I think all of you will be able to relate to in one way or another. So without further ado, let's welcome Brent to the show. Welcome Brent Stein to the show. How are you doing today, Brent? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks for joining me. I'm excited to have you on. I think this has been a long time in the makings, but we have to credit my recent guest Sasha Golish for kind of pushing me over the line she got to meet you when she was here 
and we did I think at least one run together right with her yep. and and she came to your group to talk to your group about recovery and sleep and how she commits to that process you guys became fast friends as well and so Sasha after she left Austin to go back to Toronto she's like you need to get Brent on the show I'm like I need to get Brent on the show which we already kind of talked about a little bit but she was the one that that I think pushed us over the edge the other thing as we before we jump into our discussion here is that we've already teed up in the intro is got to learn a little bit more about you one of the cool new things about you that we're basically making this a bit of the coming out party on that is that you've got a new role at rogue yep which we're super excited to have you with us as am i working on the on the day to day and you're going to be playing i don't think we have an official title yet but sort of a training and curriculum director sort of role helping with developing training curriculum working on our macro cycles, helping with coaching development, and then also helping with some stuff on the business side, like marketing and innovation and and trying to help us, you know, now that we're 15 years into being rogue, figure out what the next 15 years might look like. So excited to have you on board. Yep, excited to be here. Looking so, forward to it. So thank you. Of course, now it's you've got a little more time to jump on the podcast, so maybe we'll have to have you on other times as well. But Well, let's see how this one goes first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, we're starting here. And I think one thing that's interesting, just before we jump into talking about running and your running, is your story about how you got here in a in a more day to day role, which is that you left a career in corporate America to to come try to follow more of your passion in your work life. And I know that was a big decision. I know it's in some ways been a long time in the making, but tell us. Tell us about that. First of all, where are you coming from? Because I think that will shock people. Yeah, that, that's kind of a funny little story. I always call it the oxymoron of my life because uh, my passion is certainly around health, fitness, running. Um, been a coach here at Rogue for quite a few years. Uh, but my Eight or nine, right? Eight, or, uh, eight believe years? Eight, eight years, years yeah. Yep. Uh, but I, um, my, my real job, if you uh, could call it that, was um, working in corporate America for uh, a tobacco company, so um, <laughs> we won't name the tobacco company. Uh, yeah, but uh, <laughs> y- you can probably guess. Anyways, um, the majority of the people around Rogue in this space, especially in my coaching role, uh, when I tell them that, they, they they get a kick out of their marathon coach being a tobacco salesman. You were in sales and marketing with him, so you were literally selling cigarettes. I literally for a was selling cigarettes. Yes, <laughs> not at the kindergartens, not at playgrounds, but yes. And you were there for quite a while. Quite a while. Yeah, twenty three years. So. <laughs> oh my gosh. Joined them right out of school and, uh, you know, I learned a lot, have nothing bad to say about the organization or my experience there, but definitely have been looking for an opportunity to get out of that world and do something that would allow me to follow my passions. And um, I think you you know pretty well that I've always loved being around this space, love being around Rogue, love being around this community. And so now having the opportunity to exit that career path and kind of start over in this space is something I'm, I'm really excited about. That, though, must have been a decent-sized decision to make, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? Because you've got a wife who has her own business, Correct. and you've got a bunch of kids at home. <laughs> so it's not like you can just jump ship you know, and make that kind of call without thinking through all the layers of it. So talk about that thought process and decision-making for you guys as a family. Yeah, well, so it's, it's honestly something that my wife and I have been talking about, both of us, for years, because you mentioned she has her own business, but she was in corporate America for roughly 15, 16 years as well. And 
And both of us were really looking to do something kind of more on our own, something that would allow us to follow our passions. And uh, she had a, a better opportunity years ago to do that herself and um, kind of start her own business. And so I was supporting her by staying with my job and keeping the salary and benefits and all that good stuff. So felt like I was probably going to end up maybe just sticking it out and retiring with this company. But lo and behold, back in December, our company is going through some massive restructuring and they offered some voluntary opportunities to exit the company with some pretty um, healthy severance benefits. So uh, made that decision a whole lot easier for me. Um, and just seemed, just seemed like it was, it was meant to be at that point. So, um, and then the opportunity to connect with you here and with all the transition that's been going on with Rogue, um, it just, it was a, it was a perfect opportunity, I think, for me to get more involved and, um, help support this business and this community that I love. Yeah. Well, we're glad to have you. And in some ways then it must've been easy decision. Right. I mean, you got a nice Don't runway. You got a <laughs> yeah. nice runway from from the former company to kind of figure things out via severance. And you've been around here for a little while. Yeah. So absolutely. you know what you're getting into. Looking back on it, it's a very easy decision. <laughs> Going through it, it wasn't quite so easy. A little right. nerve wracking, but in a very happy place with my decision right now, for sure. Well, we're glad you found your way here. And... Shout out to all of those that have made those big decisions to kind of make big career choices like that. It, it, regardless of the circumstances, it always takes a degree of bravery, I think, to grab, grab a new path by, by the horn, so to speak. And so it's inspiring for me to watch it. I've done it <laughs> yep. back 10 years ago, almost now, nine years ago. But it's still, it's still something that inspires me to see others do. So kudos on that call and I'm happy for us because we get to have you around much more. Let's talk about your role as a coach here. It's been 8 years. How did you how did you get that? I don't even remember. I was trying yeah. to think back myself. Like how did Brent find us? Yeah. So, and so two, tell me that story. Two kind of funny stories. First, like how I just got involved with Rogue to begin with. Um so I ran Boston in 2010 and had a decent race. Um, I think I ran three flat um, and felt pretty good about it, but I was training kind of on my own, had a little bit of coaching support at that point, um, but was not training with a group, had never trained with a group before. I'm actually with my wife in the airport and we're getting ready to board our flight and see a group of athletes um, wearing Team Rogue shirts, kind of huddling up, seemed like they were really enjoying themselves, good little community. And I actually recognized one of them. I didn't know him all that well, but it was Larry Bright. Larry. So yep. Larry was actually, um, he, his son was doing Taekwondo at the time with my son at the okay. same facility. So yep. we had run into each other, seen each other, talked a bit, but didn't know him all that well. So fast forward next week or two, my wife's at Taekwondo and sparks up a conversation with Larry. He talks about Rogue, says, eh, you should invite your husband to you know, come check it out. Um, and so I called, talked to Carolyn. She told me, <laughs> come check it out, try Team Rogue. And you know, the rest is kind of history from there. Nice. So that was my intro to, uh, to Rogue in general. I just shared that story with Larry the other day, and he apparently had no idea that he was, he was responsible, <laughs> whether he likes it or not. Yeah. Thank you, Larry. Um, and then, uh, and then in, in terms of how I got into coaching, 
so fast forward probably another nine months, 10 months, and I got injured, unfortunately, yep. because I jumped into Team Rogue and tried <laughs> to do Team Rogue mileage. Too much, yeah. Uh, too much too soon. Um, but it was, a, it was a great thing, hindsight, because from that injury, I realized, well, I can't come run at Rogue, but I don't want to not be around this space that I love, this community. Uh, so I actually started, I talked to you first and I knew that you were coaching. I think maybe it just recently gotten into coaching. Yeah, I started it. Um, well, I started in 2010 with my group. Okay. Yeah. So that was 20, that was probably early 2011. Yeah. Um, and asked you kind of, Hey, what's involved with this coaching thing? I hadn't ever coached running, but I coached my kids. I do a lot of coaching, managing, leading people in my role at, um, you know, the tobacco company. And so I thought, hey, I love running. I love leading people and helping people. Maybe I can do this. Um, and at, the, at that point, um, I think what we determined was Allison Maxis had yep. a group, the, the A-Team, <laughs> the A-team. Uh, which is another funny story, um, that she, I think at that point, the group was getting pretty big and she needed a little help. So you were like, hey, why don't you go help Allison? So yep. I served as Allison's assistant. Yep. Um, and she was really my first mentor from a running coach perspective. So yeah. I owe her a lot, learned a lot from her during that experience. Yeah. Um, so throughout the rest of my injury rehab, I helped support Allison. And then from there got into coaching the, what well, at that point were beginner programs now couch to 5k yeah. and really had some amazing experiences with athletes that I remember one in particular, uh, Came in first day, said, I hate running, and I just want you to know that. I'm like, great. So <laughs> here this, we go. Uh, I see this as a challenge. My goal here is to make you enjoy running or at least not hate it as much. Yeah. Um, and sure enough, we turned her around. Um, so that was kind of my foray into coaching. And then the, the funny Allison story is the name of her team was the A-Team. Um, in, I don't know, another year or two, Allison stopped coaching and, and I was fortunate enough to get quite a few of her athletes that decided to come join my team. Yeah. At that point, we didn't have a team name per <laughs> se. Um, and so we decided, hey, let's come up with a team name as a group. Yeah. Well, the initial reaction was, well, we were the A team. How about <laughs> my name's Brent? The B team. <laughs> the B team. It didn't feel really good. I didn't mean, work. I, I would, I would <laughs> never complain about coming in second place to Allison right. in anything. Right. But, you know, putting the B team on a shirt, I didn't think would uh, yeah. really serve as great marketing or inspiration for my team. So someone threw out the idea of killer bees and yep. it kind of stuck. And yep. here we are. You're now coach of the killer bees that meets on Tuesday nights here at Rogue with co-coach Amy Baker correct who also leads that group and it's an awesome group so anybody in Austin who wants to check it out Brent can be found on Tuesday nights the and by the way Allison went on to become our fearless leader of Rogue Expeditions she's been on this podcast before and is also still incredibly fast still incredibly (laughs) fast getting beat by Allison in anything ever is still a badge of honor absolutely so before we talk, and, and what we're going to talk about today, as we mentioned in the intro, is sort of your coaching philosophy, kind of riff on that. A lot of it is stuff we've rehashed before, or we've talked about before on this podcast, but it's always good to go back, re- refresh on that, but also just bring a different perspective to it. You've, you've kind of come to these coaching principles, obviously by being trained by us, but have put your own spin on it. We're also going to be talking about some examples of athletes that you've worked with that 
that show some of these principles living out in their world. And so I think that's going to be interesting. So it's sort of a training philosophy podcast with a side of practical application and your real world life as a coach here at Rogue. And so that's going to be fun. But let's let's go back to your running journey first. I know we've got the, the, the Rogue and coaching journey, but how did you start in running? How did you get to that Boston where you saw Team Rogue <laughs> people? What was it? How did it evolve for you? Yeah, sure. So my uh, first kind of experience in um, distance running was in 2003. Actually, I guess started in 2002. Started with a group of friends, had happy hour over a few drinks. And we had one friend that actually had run a few marathons and she kind of challenged all of us to train for the Austin Marathon. So a few beers in, several of us decided, <laughs> hey, that sounds like a fun idea. Had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Yeah. Um, so it was myself, my wife, a couple of friends. Lo and behold, I got hooked up with Austin Fit, trained with them, ran my first marathon. Um, by the way, I was the only one of that group that followed through. My, my wife <laughs> at least had a good excuse. She, she was pregnant with our first child, so okay. I'll, I'll forgive her for that. Yeah. She ran one later. Um, and I've, I've got this uh, funny knack of hitting these times at marathons that just leave me wanting more. <laughs> so this time was uh, my first marathon. Didn't care too much about time, but four hours, zero, zero minutes <laughs> and like 12 seconds. Nice. So clearly, um, you know, that left a little bit to be desired. Yeah. Um, that being said, I didn't run another marathon uh, for several years. It was actually 2010, I believe, was my next one. Um, I got hooked up with uh, a coach through a triathlon company and uh, trained for the San Antonio Rock and Roll Marathon. At that point, um, the Boston qualifying time was 3.15, um, but that was when you actually had the full minute. So I could yeah. go 3.15.59. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and that was my goal. Yeah. So uh, the training had gone well. I felt like I was in decent shape um, and I gave it a shot. Um, if anyone's familiar with the San Antonio Rock and Roll Marathon, it's got a uh, very fun little finish as it circles around the uh, stadium and has a nice sharp little hill right at the end. Um, kind of cruel and unusual punishment yeah. at the end of a marathon. But I crossed the finish line, didn't know exactly where I stood, but stopped my watch and I knew it was damn close. Uh, technology wasn't as great back then, so it took me a couple hours to find out that I had crossed the finish line in three sixteen zero zero. One second. One short. second. Yeah. Oh my gosh. My I coach afterwards, she's like, "Why didn't you take off your damn shoe and throw <laughs> it across the finish line ahead of you?" Oh man, missed it by so, one second. I did. Wow. It did. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was fun. So yeah. I uh, continued to train. Um, picked another marathon about six weeks later. It was, uh, in Phoenix and was able to shave that time off. So made it to my first Boston. So, uh, goal achieved there, really enjoyed it. Um, and then, you know, ran several more marathons throughout. Um, and once I joined Rogue, I mentioned before I got injured kind of right away yep. and then came back from injury. Um, had a little bit of success, finally got my sub three marathon, but really didn't, um, for several years achieve kind of the progress that I felt like I had inside me as an athlete. Yep. And then I got injured again. 
and this injury was pretty bad. It was uh, 2015, and I had um, ankle surgery. I had a broken bone and damaged tendon and ligament in my left ankle, um, and had a, a, a surgery performed, which went really well. Um, doctor was very optimistic that I'd be back to 100%, and, and I got there. But it took a while. Yeah. Um, and I knew at this point, like, I went through a lot during this process as an athlete, as an individual, as a father. Um, because at that point, I'm like, you know, if I never run a marathon again, it's okay. I'd right. like to run again. I'd like to be able to play soccer, play basketball with my kids. Um, that's the most important thing. Ideally, run a little bit. But if I never run a marathon, if I never run a PR again, I, I, I can live with that. Um, that wasn't my goal, but um, that's where my head was at. I, I really wanted to be able to enjoy being active the rest of my life. So, so that really changed my perspective on a lot of things and really gave me a lot more patience with yep. my rehab, with my training, with everything, and, and kind of reset my goals in life around um, running. So what I decided to do was develop a really long, slow buildup to try and come back to the marathon. Yep. Um, also, at, at the time, getting back into coaching and had some friends that had goals for themselves. And so I committed to train with them and kind of help pace them in their races to help them achieve their goals. So the first one was in uh, Houston, help a friend. Uh, shoot for a 3:30 marathon. The next one, fast forward, was in Grandma's. Helped another friend try and hit a, a sub three, and so these were kind of building blocks along the way for me to slowly be patient with building back my fitness and be smart about it, um, and also at the same time find something else that was kind of an indirect result of this process that I realized I loved, which is pacing. Yeah. Um, so paced a couple of friends. Later, I, I was fortunate enough also to, to become part of the awesome marathon pacing group, which has been a lot of fun as well. Fast forward, so the surgery was 2015, and my kind of, I, I guess, coming out party, uh, <laughs> my A race, if you will, was uh, just this past December in CIM. 2018, yeah. 2018, three years, so three, years, three years, and training went really, really well, um, and... Finally, I was able to achieve, I think, what I had deep inside me the whole time. Yeah. I think I've still got more, hopefully. For um, sure. But had a really strong PR and uh, had just an amazing race. So it, it really kind of taught me, or not taught me, but really validated to me as an athlete um, how important the idea of consistency and patience with our training is. And so yeah. that kind of takes me to... to kind of the first tenet, yeah. if you will. Point one is consistency and patience on this coaching philosophy discussion. But I just want to reflect for a second on, I mean, you ran sub 50 at CIM, got a PR. How old are you? Uh, if you don't mind sharing I with don't, the world. Uh, I actually just turned 46. Okay. So 46 years old, ran a PR. Yep. Sub 250 after a three-year comeback journey. To me, that is just beyond inspiring because. And I got to have a front row seat essentially to the whole thing. Yep. But, but yeah, your patience, your diligence. And it wasn't like those three years were all smooth sailing either. You know, it's like, yes, because of your patience, they were smoother than maybe some of your past comebacks, but you right. had little ups and downs throughout, oh, absolutely. right? You know, for sure. Little issues and, 
and I know you were diligent about your PT and every, you know, all the supplemental stuff you had to do to stay healthy, keep that ankle happy. I mean, you had hip surgery before that, right? So, I did. so, you know, you've got some Toe surgery before you've got that. some things, <laughs> yeah, some chassis issues that require not just the patients, but also the, the, the complete athlete view of working, not just the running, but all the supplemental work and to see your commitment to that. And then to, to follow through and deliver at CIM at 46 years old, your fastest marathon, that's inspiring. And hopefully others that are after that master's 40 you know, window and I'm approaching it, yep. it inspires me. It's like, I, I believe I could be faster at 46 than, I'm at, than I am at 39 currently. And that's cool. Well, thank you. I'm uh, hopefully not done yet. Yeah. Also, I'm- I know you're not done. Now you did have a you did have a a hiatus from running and did some cycling, right? What was that? What was that window? What years were you where you jumped on the bike and you like won a time trial or something yeah, crazy? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I think that was around 2000, 2013, 14, I believe. That was after the hip surgery, if I'm not it mistaken. It was, yeah. yeah. So I got into, I had the hip surgery. That rehab was pretty tough, and I was a little leery of how much impact I wanted to put on the hip. Yep, so yep. got back on the bike, and I've always kind of been on the bike um, throughout my life, really enjoy it as cross-training, and hooked up with a, a group of, of folks that had a, a racing team, and got a little bit involved in racing yeah. and uh, realized that the time trial thing I was, I was okay at. Cause yeah. I, just like in the marathon, I can kind of get in a zone and suffer and for a while. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I ended up yeah. winning my, my age group in the state uh, time trial. That's cool. But is also, I think a part of the story of you at that time couldn't run, but you found another way to develop the aerobic system, which laid a building block that would, I think ultimately helped get you to what you got last year. It did. You know, if, it you did. Had, if you just sat on your ass for two years, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have had that same trajectory. Yeah. So, well, let's go, let's go to, to kind of coaching tenant from Brent one, number one here, consistency and patience. You already teed that up with that story that you've demonstrated in your own running, but talk about what that means for you as a coach. Yeah. Well, the way I think about it is, you know, clearly we all know this as, as coaches and runners, uh, but running fitness doesn't develop overnight, right? It takes time. It takes time for our bodies to develop the appropriate musculature to be able to sustain the, the pounding that we put on them. It, it takes time to develop the aerobic system properly, um, especially when we're talking about marathon training. And so as, as I've coached and as I've seen athletes, especially newer athletes, um, I've realized how frustrating this can be for athletes. Um, they, want, um, they want to see fitness gains quicker. And so my goal here is, first of all, to make sure to really set appropriate expectations, to help them understand that we have to have patience. This does take time and illustrate to them what happens if you try and rush it. Yep. Um, clearly, you can get injured um, along the way. and. Um, so, so, and then the other aspect to that is to continue to motivate them throughout the process, um, to have ways to help them evaluate how they're progressing as they continue down this path, um, to keep them excited. And, you know, we do that through a variety of ways, whether it's time trial workouts, whether it's shorter races, 
um, in the buildup to a long race. Um, but that I see that as a huge priority for me as a coach to help my athletes have appropriate expectations and have the motivation along the way. You can't microwave fitness. <laughs> it's a great way to put it. You I mean, cannot right? microwave fitness it's for like sure. Stick it in the microwave, two minutes, you're done. No. But in, in, in our world, it comes in the form of athletes that show up and say, oh, I want to microwave a marathon PR. You know, stick it in the oven for five months or three sometimes. Right. <laughs> and magically, you know, marathon PR comes out the other side of it. And while sometimes that can happen, it's not the view that runners need. They need to come in thinking about it with a long-term view because not only does that open up possibilities for more, but it also allows you to prioritize the activities appropriately so that you are building their fitness appropriately so that they don't get injured and can then ultimately be consistent long-term. But I struggle with that conversation with that newer athlete, that newer runner who's, who comes and oftentimes they join. It might come in the form of joining our group in September, sometimes even October, and they'll say, hey, I'm training for the Austin Marathon in you know, four months or five months. I haven't been running the last three, but I would love to PR in February. How do you convey to that type of person, and I'm sure you have your own examples, this longer term vision because they don't want to hear it. <laughs> no, they don't. they don't. They don't. Um, and especially if they're an experienced athlete. Um, if it's a newer athlete, it makes that conversation, I think, a little bit easier. Um, I, I, so I would say as a coach, I'm typically more of a collaborative type coach. I really enjoy when, when an athlete of mine gets very involved in their training and takes ownership of it because it makes it a lot easier, right? Yep. Um, so, so, Typically, I'm, I'm much more of a collaborative type coach, but in these situations, that's where I take a little bit more of a kind of dictatorial type approach, if you will. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, I have to kind of step in and say, look, um, especially if it's a first time marathoner, first time marathoner, I'm pretty adamant that there is no time goal, period. The right. goal is to get you across that finish line, ideally with some semblance of a smile on your face yes, or yes. at least not you know, right. horrible frown and puking <laughs> Enjoy um, it, yeah. and, and, and ideally wanting to potentially do another one at some point, then second marathon, we can talk about time for an athlete that's been there before. It's not their first rodeo. It does make that conversation a little bit more difficult. And, yeah. and so that's where I just take a little bit harder stance with them um, and try to illustrate to them stories of other athletes that have tried to microwave their fitness and yeah. what happens, what can happen as a negative result of that. And usually I can get through to them, but yeah. you know, there's always athletes that um, may decide <laughs> they're going to do what they want to do regardless. Right. Their examples are a good way. Another way I think about it is, is to, to basically step back from the immediate and say, okay, let's step back. If you were to have a lifetime goal in this sport, what would that be? Or if they can't think about lifetime, if they can't think that far, if, if you were to pick a goal in three years or five years, where do you want to be with your running? What is that? Get them to articulate that part. And, and then walk backwards from there to say, if, if I'm going to get you to that goal, then that means we need to build everything up until that point with, with some sort of design, with some sort of intelligence in mind so that it all builds to the big peak, right? 
and then you can kind of then working backwards piece together the dots to yes. say, okay, well, if you're going to microwave this now, it's not going to allow you to potentially set yourself up for that five-year or three-year or lifetime goal down the road, which can also get people yeah. there. Yeah, so we take a similar approach. We, when I do one-on-ones with my athletes, especially new athletes, I always ask them to set a short-term and a long-term goal. And then if that short-term goal is a PR that is not realistic, I try and help massage and persuade the conversation to make that more of a longer term goal. What do you mean by patience? Because I think that has a lot of meanings here. Yeah. Because there's, there's, there's just the mentality of being patient, but then there's also the idea of being patient with your training and, or maybe patient with your approach to racing so when you say patience, what do you mean? Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of meanings for sure. And the way I think about it is when I talk about this whole idea of, you know, fitness not being able to be microwaved, as you put it, um, it can be really frustrating along the way. Um, and so I think you have to understand and have just a perspective to realize that you're not going to see progress overnight. Um, I think about um, one of my athletes, one of my long-term athletes really comes to mind when I think about patience. And the other, the other word I would use here that I sometimes do is persistence. Um, and so this athlete, Mike Voth, he's um, one of my faster athletes. Uh, he's been training with me for probably four or five years, and he's always been a fast athlete. Um, he's, and he's also always had a goal to BQ and get a sub three. And he was pretty darn close on the outset. I think he was close to a 315 marathon. Um, the f- one of the first training cycles, we got him um, in, in fitness that I think was pretty close to allow him to race and um, achieve that goal. Unfortunately, he didn't achieve it. Um, I think he came in, his BQ at that point was 305, I believe. He came in 304 and change. Um, this went on over a period of years. Mike's race now three or four races over the course of the last several years that has, um, all, all of the results have been around that same time, 304, 303, 310, uh, even though his fitness was there. Um, so Mike was clearly frustrated. I honestly was somewhat frustrated as his coach. We would try new things along the way, try to better understand what was going on with his training, what was getting in, in the way, um, and pull, new, pull different levers each time to help him try and, and make that jump. Um, so when I think about patience and persistence, I remember multiple conversations with Mike where we sat down and had one-on-ones, and he was potentially at, at times ready to just give up on this goal. Um, and so that's where we had to go back and, and kind of have some of those same conversations that you mentioned before and, and think about, Hey, is this really important to you? Is this a big goal? And if so, then let's, let's figure it out together. Um, let's not get frustrated with what's happened in the past. Um, let's learn from those experiences and try something new and continue to learn and develop as an athlete so that we can get there. And Sure enough, uh, fast forward to, I believe it was August of last year, he ran the tunnel marathon and 
not only BQ'd and PR'd and went sub three, but it was like a, I think, eight, nine minute PR. So it was nice. pretty huge. That's awesome. Those stories are always good ones because most of them don't end in happy endings. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you have those athletes right. where they kind of hit a plateau perhaps and they're banging their head against their wall and, and or shit gets in the highway. Like they have yeah. just happen to have bad weather race after bad weather race or whatever it may be. And then you get this drought, so to speak, where they're not able to hit goals, not able to PR, whatever it may be. And a lot of people fall away right. in those moments. But those that don't usually get there. You know, I think the quote is, you only fail when you stop trying. Right. It's kind of the, the idea, yep. basically. It's like, and Mike didn't stop trying. So that's, that's, that's super cool. And to me, those stories are some of the best because people like that who are able to stick with it through the, all those ups and downs, be patient, be persistent, and get there. It's, it's always most rewarding. Absolutely. And Mike is, uh, there. Mike is running his first Boston coming up here that in a couple awesome. of weeks. And it is, it's so much fun. It's so inspiring to watch him. That is awesome. Did you guys figure anything out or was it just a matter of giving another at bat? Like, was there any insight, you know, that you, or tweaks you made to his programming or how he approached things that ultimately got you that big goal? Yeah. I mean, there were tweaks along the way. Um, so, um, you know, I guess one of the things we learned along the way was how many miles Mike needed, like what kind of workload he needed. So we made tweaks along the way there that we thought helped in terms of his fitness, didn't translate in the next race result. But I think ultimately looking back at it, those were the right decisions. Mm. But that race, to your point, just shit happened that yeah. day. Was and that adding mileage or? It was on? adding a bit of mileage, yep. but it was not going overboard. Yep. Um, so we had to find the right mileage that, Mike was able to respond to and stay healthy with. Yeah. So that was one piece. There, there's another piece around just Mike's health and diet and um, some things that made it really hard for him. He would hit walls because of nutrition and things like that. Yep. So we really had to, to, to figure out what nutrition worked for him, what hydration worked for him during the course of the race um, so that he didn't hit that wall. So that yep. was a big piece of it as well. Yep. The other thing, and people may be listening that are in a drought like that. The other thing I remind them of too is that if you're doing work, you're getting better, even if the results aren't coming. Yeah. Because consistency is the number one metric for improving in this sport. And if you're consistent in your training, putting in month after month of work, regardless of whether the race results are coming, you're getting benefit that is only adding to your aerobic foundation building your aerobic capacity that will pay off down the road so you're building that bank even if you're not seeing yep. the money flow Absolutely. out of it yeah and, and mike and i did some analysis of his kind of body of work over the that kind of three three and a half year period yeah. and he he's he's great he keeps track of all of his training logs um so he came to me with uh, the graphs of all of this work over the last three years and the graphs have gotten bigger and more work and more consistency um, and less breaks. Mike used yeah. to take bigger breaks between mm -hmm. programs and we identified that that was an opportunity because he was losing fitness between. Yep. Yep. Um, and so looking back at all that body of work that he had done, not just this cycle, but over the last three, four years, I think really gave him 
also the confidence that he needed to know that he was ready to do this. And I think it shows in the big breakthrough. You know, yeah. if it was if it was just the last cycle that mattered, he, he would have had an in- incremental breakthrough. But the fact that he had a big breakthrough basically says, look, three or four years of work got him there. Yep. And that's sometimes what it takes for people. You know, there are those people that we might hate that <laughs> just seem to PR every time yes, or that yes. are new in the sport and just have amazing things happen. And that happens. And those are those are the experiences. And that's the journey for some people. And when that happens, it's great. But for most people, even in that bucket, at some point, you're going to find that lull. You know, it took me 10 years between marathon PRs from 2004 to 2014. There were a lot of reasons for that. Some of them were, were because of grad school and kids and a lot of life change and yes. a crazy job. But another part of it was I had several races that were just bad marathons that were bad for whatever reason, weather conditions, got sick before one of them, that kind of stuff where I just didn't have the ability to show my fitness. It took me 10 years. Wow. That takes a lot of patience. <laughs> I mean, how did so, you manage that? Well, I mean, for me at that point, I had, I had, fallen in love with running for the sake of running. So yep. it was sort of, I got into a place where I didn't care if I PR'd ever again. I was going to run no matter what. Yep. So th- I think that helped because there were other reasons for me to stay with it, to stay consistent, having other motivations. But the other part was just going back to work. I always believed it would happen. And it's never, I never lost my belief, but Every time you just go back to work and keep yep. keep pressing and, you know, it eventually happened and it's happened again since, you know. So it, it's, it's interesting, but anybody listening who isn't already thinking about their running in a long-term decade-wide perspective is probably too short-sighted. I just was talking to an athlete just now. I just I was having a one-on-one with a runner who is older in life. And we were actually talking to her together the other day and she said, my goal is longevity. I want to be running when I'm 70. And that put, and and that's 20 plus years from now, that put a perspective on how we approach the now that was very different for her than she might've thought about it previously. And, and that to me is the right way to think about it. Think about it in the context of big chunks of time because this training cycle, whatever you might be in now, it matters a small sliver of what matters in the grand scheme of your running journey if you're approaching it the right way. Let's give a, another example. Well, you're well, you you were the other example. I was the other <laughs> example there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but but going back to the patience idea, it's patience in time also patience within cycle you know one of the things i saw a quote recently i think it was on twitter from another coach who said i would rather get my athletes to a start line undercooked and healthy than overcooked and on the edge or unhealthy or maybe you know teetering on the brink of of over overtraining and i think that's generally true when in doubt be conservative yep so that you do get to the start line healthy because the more bats you can get healthy, the better off you're going to be. In fact, I think I told you that this cycle for myself as an athlete going into CIM, this was the first time that I felt essentially 100% healthy getting to a start line of a marathon. Yeah. 
Um, and, and I could have probably done more Well, I know I could have done more. I actually yep. lowered my mileage considerably versus previous cycles. Yep. I was at roughly 55 miles a week when in past cycles I'd been at 70. Yep. Um, but I knew that I needed to make sure that I was fully recovered and healthy. Yep. Um, yep. and it worked. That balance is important. Absolutely. All right. So that's your coaching philosophy point one, consistency and patience. Let's talk about point two. Yeah, so to me, this one's really important. And, and a lot of these obviously um, uh, kind of overlap, but this one is, is really the crux of it. And it's understanding the athlete as an individual, um, really understanding, learning what makes them tick, what gets in their way, what motivates them, and being able to adapt their kind of direction, your communication um, based on what that athlete needs. Um, and, and, and then in addition to that, it's understanding the athlete as, as a person, because the majority of the athletes we coach here, um, they're not professional runners, right? They have lives, they have um, careers, they have families, they have a lot of other stuff going on in their lives that if we don't really understand what that other stuff is, what those other stressors are, um, then we're not going to do them um, the best service in their training plan. Um, I think I, Jason Brooks kind of yeah, calls Jason this talked about total it in our, stress in series. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that that concept is right on. And I've always, I've always looked at that. In fact, I remember years ago when I was, uh, first getting into coaching, I always heard John Shrupp when he was talking to his athletes before a workout, he'd ask them, Hey, who's got shit going on this week? Who's stressed out? Uh, and then he would potentially modify th their workload that day um, if someone had something that was you know, really affecting them and impacting them. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's what I think about. Um, I, I've got to make sure, while I coach a fairly large group, I've got to make sure that I, I know each individual and um, what's important to them, what their goals are, what could potentially get in the way and then keep tabs on that throughout each training cycle to understand if we need to make adjustments along the way. So we obviously have group-based training. So in some ways, this is counter to that idea that if, if it needs to be individuals, how does that work in the context of a group? How do you think about that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, so it, it certainly is challenging when you're managing a group of, you know, my size group, which is typically around 50 to 60 athletes. Your size group is considerably larger. Yep. Um, and, and, and you can't provide um, really individual coaching with every athlete in a group like that on every single workout. But what you can do is have really good open communication and dialogue with them. And, um, you know, I think one-on-ones are critically important. I ideally like to have, um, two one-on-ones, two structured one-on-one -on -one conversations with each athlete over the course of a marathon training cycle, one somewhere in the beginning to set goals and then one pre-race. Um, but along the way, I also invite them to schedule one-on-ones whenever they need to. Um, so I, Amy and I both typically make ourselves available for one-on-one -on -one conversations before and after every workout. Um, and then at other times as needed. Um, but then I also just invite my athletes to keep me in the loop of how they're feeling, what's getting in the way, 
um, whether that's throughout the course of the week on text, email, et cetera. Um, Amy and I try and do a, she, she typically does better with this, but typically try and do a, a pretty good job of stalking our athletes on Strava um, and, and getting a gauge on, you know, how they're performing. And, and if there's issues, then we can follow up with them accordingly. Um, and then another thing I like to do is just before workouts, after workouts is be here and talk to them and ask them what's going on. How's their training going? What's going on in their life? Um, and you can really understand a lot about individuals and figure out where you need to dig deeper um, if you have that face time with them. When you meet somebody for the first time, what's the first thing you want to know about them as an athlete? Um, well, <laughs> there's quite a bit. Um, well, what's the first question you would ask? So uh, really, ultimately, the first thing I ask them is why they're here. <laughs> So, you know, what do they hope to get out of this um, and how can I help them with that? That's the gist of that initial conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I basically ask the same. Why do you run and why, what does it mean to you? Because I do think the a part of this tenet is the, 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 the person, the mental side of it. And then a part of it is the physical. You got to understand what makes them tick, as you said but also then flowing from that what physically they need to get the best out of themselves. And, and you know, where to me that fits in the context of a group is you know, we have monthly programming. We train for seasons at a time, but we'll have options. You know, you can run, train for half, you can train for full. There'll be different workouts in the context of your group happening. And so where the real individualization comes, I think, from a physical standpoint is how many miles per week are they running to manage all the load? What are they training for in given blocks so that they're able to get those weaknesses developed if they need to or maybe amplify right. some of their strengths at very different times? So it kind of comes in the, the macro view of how they fit in the context of the group because at the end of the day, what you're doing on Tuesday night and what I'm doing on Wednesday morning it matters less in terms of a given day <laughs> right. than the big picture. Absolutely. Right. So, so, th so that individualization really we're talking about from a physical standpoint is those bigger questions about how much, how their total training looks, how they fit into the context of the macros that we're leading and so forth. Yeah. What examples? Give me some examples of this. Yeah. Well, so one, one of my athletes who, again, has also, she's, she's actually one of those athletes that joined me from Allison's A-team, uh, Stacy Shapiro. She's been training with me now for several years. And is uh, also a road coach. Also a road coach, yes. And Stacy has developed a lot of fitness over the years. She's also had a lot of hurdles over the years um, and, and quite a few injuries. Um, and, and really she was one of those kind of that you mentioned earlier that would seem to just not be able to get over this hump, just had plateaued and had big goals for herself, but just wasn't making the progress that, that we hoped that she would make based on the, the workload that she was, um, executing. And she was, she was a rock star. I mean, she was doing the workout. She was doing the workload. Super consistent. Super consistent. Um, what we finally realized and this was really a learning for I think Amy and I both as we um, uh, as we coached Stacy along the way was that we saw a pattern over the years 
So it seemed to be like the summer she put on a lot of miles and was super, super consistent um, and would typically try and race somewhere in the fall, December, or, or some, sorry, fall, winter, um, but just ended up getting broken down. And, and usually it started happening around kind of August, September timeframe. Well, looking back, hindsight, I kind of say duh, because we should have <laughs> picked up on this sooner, right. but Stacy's a teacher. And so Stacy went back to school before school got in session to get her classroom ready um, to do, you know, orientation, things like that. She was on her feet. We had her tracking her her steps (laughs) on her GPS. She was on her feet 10,000 steps a day these days before she ever went for her run. Yeah. So and we weren't adjusting her workload before that. Yeah. So once we should get hurt when she went back. (laughs) Once we realized that, yeah, she'd she'd go back and she'd immediately get hurt because her total stress uh, workload was just way too high. Um, And we we weren't taking account for that in her training schedule. So once we made that adjustment, um, she was, you know, really able to immediately kind of break through that plateau um, and also just recently was able to achieve one of her goals, which was to get a Boston qualifying time. So. Boom, boom. Yeah. Congrats to Stacy on that. That's interesting. It is. It's another question I always ask when I first talk to somebody is, what do you do? Because I do think, and Jason referenced it on that, the human performance project right, miniseries right. is career has such an impact on our stress load, our time capacity to do other things and affects what, what we can put into our training for better or for worse. Yep. And in Stacy's case, she's a super committed teacher. You know, she's super committed. She, I mean, if you know, if if there if there is, I mean, and I know all teachers are committed, <laughs> <laughs> but Stacy is uber committed, and and she does she bends over backwards for those kids. Yes, she and does. So it's natural that that would then take away from what she's trying to do in her pursuit. And that's the choice that she's made, and she's acceptable with that trade off. But then we have to account for it in the training yep what's another example so i've got uh two examples that are kind of um opposite of each other that are kind of fun and and so you talk about like really understanding what an athlete needs what makes them tick and and i think you've got to even somewhat take their personality into consideration um so i've got an athlete megan schwartz who um she has she's again a super hard worker super consistent and she loves a schedule. She loves to be told exactly what to do, when to do it, how much work to do. And we give her a schedule and she goes and executes that thing to a T. She also loves feedback, whether it's in the form of um, verbal feedback from Amy or I, um, or feedback through um, you know, periodic races um, in the buildup to her event. Um, and, and that really builds confidence in her. Um, in fact, recently in the most current cycle, she's training for Mount Charleston, the downhill race. And we initially had planned for her to run Austin, um, to do it as a workout, but really to get some feedback on how her training was going, how her fitness was coming around. And due to some unfortunate personal circumstances, she wasn't able to run Austin. She's she's struggled with that. She really has because she was planning to have that feedback to tell her what her fitness, where her fitness was. 
Um, and without that, her, her confidence has uh, not been what I think she wanted it to be. So um, Amy and I are 100% confident that she's where she needs to be. She's got the fitness. Right. She's going to kill it at Mount Charleston. Um, but it, Megan is, is really one that needs those numbers. She's, she likes a spreadsheet. She likes a schedule. And she likes that hard feedback. Um, so, so we've come to understand that and we try and deliver on that. Now, the kind of opposite of that is uh, one of my good friends and athletes, Jacob Garcia, um, who no longer trains with me. He's actually training with Team Rogue now, but I, Amy and I coach him for a number of years. And Jacob is an amazing individual. I always call him kid. Um, <laughs> he's an amazing kid. Um, and he, he also likes a schedule. But more importantly, I, I call it love and support. Yep. Jacob needs a lot of love. And he is much more of a mental athlete. Um, he needs to feel like what he's doing has a purpose. And um, when we were able to really understand that about him and understand that he needed to feel good about what he was doing, um, he, he just skyrocketed as an athlete. Yeah, and I think these are all examples and for those that might be listening who have a coach, these are the types of things that a coach should be thinking about. And if they're not, you should be engaging them on. And if you're coaching and leading your own journey, they're factors to consider. How, to, how does the career influence what you're doing? How does family, how does other stress influence what you're doing? What do you need to get confidence from your training? And make sure you're delivering on those things. Because I do think... A, a program executed perfectly as written is less important than executing some form of training that the individual is confident and can believe in and that fits with their personality and their style. That's more important. Yeah. A tailored program, a fact, accounting for all those factors is more important than a perfect program. Let's talk about Brent coaching philosophy point number three. And this one, by the way, we have a whole episode on yes. episode seven. So this will be, we'll rehash here, but we can't say it enough. Yeah. So, so this is about miles and, and the way I put it is miles matter. They certainly do, but there are limits. And so I think you have to be very careful here. You know, I talked about myself as an athlete before jumping into team rogue too much too soon. And, and those miles weren't right at that time for me. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's really important to understand what stimulus each athlete needs in order to achieve their goal um, and then structure their plan accordingly. So, um, you know, adding too many miles, too many workouts, too many long runs um, may help short term, but likely if it's too much, it's going to lead to overtraining and then down the road, possibly injury. Um, so my goal here is to create a plan and I'm kind of stealing from our new team road coach, Ryan, yep. um, really is to do the minimal amount of work needed to accomplish the athlete's goals. And it's not to say to slack or be lazy, but do the appropriate amount of work and not too much. Um, I, I think that's really important and it, it can be challenging because I know I felt it as an athlete being around this community, um, you get inspired, you get inspired by the athletes around you and, um, how much work they're doing and, and seeing their progress and fitness gains. And, 
um, you think, oh, well, you know, if Wesley can do it, I can do it. I'm going to add miles as well. But it's really important that you're doing what's right for you. And um, I think that's why having a coach is so important um, because they can really help give you that perspective on what is right for you. So Yeah, the way Ryan put it in his first meeting with Team Rogue was if if you can run one mile a week and get your goal, that's what you should do. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah. uh, we Most of us don't have that kind of talent. But, no. but I think the approach is good. The way I sometimes put it is you can only do as many miles as you can recover from. Right. And if you're not recovering from the mileage you're doing, then the mileage isn't good. But beyond that, the miles do matter and they should be goal appropriate. And more for most people is probably better yep. if they can recover from it. But it's not the end all and be all. You know, we've had Kate Barrett on the podcast. She talked about in our episode with her after CIM, uh, the one that Jesse was on as well, that she did 55 miles a week to run a 243 and get her OTQ. If anybody, anybody looked at our schedule for her and saw that, they would think there's no way. Right. There's no way. And her history. I mean, she hadn't run under 250 before that. 254, I think, was her PR before that race. And if anybody looked at what she was doing, the work, and her previous PR, they would have said, Chris K., you're, you're crazy to think that she can <laughs> OTQ. And they, in their worldview, would have been right, I guess, except K and I knew, <laughs> knew differently. Yeah. You know, we knew between the two of us that both what she needed physically to stay healthy, but also mentally to stay engaged that we could get her to that goal with that level of mileage. And it wasn't, and, and by the way, it wasn't just about the total mileage. It was also about how the miles fit together because we also knew we had to get her doing long runs, you know, because she hadn't really had a lot of experience with 20 plus mile runs. Right. And so, so our schedule for her was very weighted towards that. If you looked at the grand scheme, you know, people also have that rule and they say, well, are you sure your long run should be 20 to 30% of your weekly mileage? And you'll read that in, in certain books and I won't name the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> and I think that's stupid. It's an arbitrary number that somebody made up because, or somebody said was important because elites who are running hundred plus mile weeks and might do a 20, 20, 20 mile long run, that's 20% of their volume. Right. But why does that percentage cascade cascade down it doesn't so anyway point being you have to find the mileage balance that's appropriate for you to get the goals that are appropriate for you because you said as you said you can't be lazy either if somebody wants to get a bq probably not going to happen on 20 to 30 miles a week absolutely unless you're just some phenom so it has to be appropriate to your goals and appropriate to what works for you let's talk about some examples here yeah, so I, I, first off, I think your story about Kate is fantastic. I mean, she, you know, that also demonstrates how you as a coach really understood that athlete as an individual and the whole picture and history. And then you, you pulled the levers appropriately to give her exactly the training stimulus she needed um, in spite of, you know, what others might think that, hey, this is not what it yeah. takes to get a 243 OTQ, right? <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, to, so I've got two examples, and, and, and one I'm going to leave nameless because unfortunately it's uh, the example of what happens when this goes wrong, and unfortunately she's no longer training with us. We'll, we'll just call her Sally. Um, Sally was um, 
she she was a relatively new runner i believe when she joined us she had maybe only run one marathon or maybe it was her first she trained with us for a couple of training cycles and had was one of those athletes that you talked about before that just her performance continued to um you know pr- progress um race after race and it looked like there was no stopping sally i mean she was getting fitter and faster um every week and you know she was jumping from uh you know mini group and mini pace group uh on up the way um throughout uh throughout our group as the cycles progressed and she eventually hit her goal which was um to uh bq and she did that by several minutes i forget the actual time i think it was 3:32 ish um unfortunately in the lead up to boss actually following that bq attempt she came back and was a little gimpy and she never really recovered from that had gotten injured in that in that race and she still went to boston um she didn't end up really running it um and so it was it was really kind of a sad story to see because hindsight um she she just ran too many miles and too too many for her body to be able to appropriately recover from um and and well she probably did too much too soon too much too soon likely yep, yep. and um the antithesis to that i had mentioned him before wesley wheeler he's uh one of our new-ish athletes. Well, he's not really new anymore, I guess. He's uh, been with us probably about three years. Wesley, um, his background, he was actually a competitive swimmer at um, Texas A&M. So an extremely athletic individual, but hadn't done a lot of running. Um, he, but extremely talented athlete. He ran his first marathon with basically on no training before he came to us. He, the way he tells the story, he bonked, but he still ran it in 310. <laughs> yeah. Um, one with essentially the, one no of those we get to training. hate. One of those yes, people yes. we get to hate. We love to hate Wesley. Yes, yes. Um, but Wesley has been the absolute epitome of consistency and patience, and his miles have always been um, appropriate. So um, we've sat down with him at every cycle. And Amy's really done a nice job of analyzing the workload that he did, the performance gains that he made, and then making small tweaks to slowly increase the mileage. Um, so he's also um, done a really nice job with listening to his body and, and being proactive with his recovery, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but Wesley has built his mileage over time, and in his most recent race, I believe was Chicago. Um, he did a PR, I believe it was around 250, 252 um, on, I think about 55 miles a week as well. Um, and, and that was, you know, a slight increase over his previous program. He's currently training for uh, Boston, which was a goal of his along the way to qualify. And he made it. And he's also going to be joining Mike. Um, in, in Boston in a couple of weeks. And again, his mileage, we've increased it, but just by a little bit. So we're making sure that he can appropriately recover from the workload that he's um, executing against. And his fitness has just continued to improve race after race. Slow, patient build. Yeah. 
being consistent along the way. Wesley and I have a fun little uh, competitive relationship too. Um, he uh, he he beat my PR um, when before CIM <laughs> and was pretty excited about it. Um, and then at CIM, I beat him. Yeah. Uh, then he, he ran a coming after you he again. ran a half marathon and beat my PR. <laughs> uh, the other, I guess a couple of weeks ago we were on the track and it was pretty funny. He got really excited because he was doing mile repeats and he got done with his last one and he looked at his watch and said, "Hey, coach, I just uh, had a, a mile PR." I said, "Oh yeah, what'd you get?" Five fifteen. I told him, Wesley, my PR is five eleven. He's like, damn, I need to go run another mile. Nice. <laughs> nice. But it's exciting to he's see. Coming he's coming for He's gunning for me, and I told him, I hope he gets it because then I'm gonna. Yeah. Well, there's gun for him again. Yeah. There's nothing more satisfying as a co- as a coach than when you see your students oh, or athlete beat you. Okay, so let's talk about the last point here, which really is the glue that keeps it all together. Yeah. So, absolutely. Talk about recovery. Yeah. So this is something that as an athlete and as a coach, um, you know, I, I guess has evolved a ton for me in my thinking. And especially with one of your most recent podcasts with uh, Christy and talking about her book, it, it's about recovery. Recovery to me is king. Recovery is the single most important thing that we can do um, in order to get faster. In fact, I was listening to a podcast uh, Coach Phil Wharton was talking about and he was asked by Jay Johnson, who was hosting the, the conversation, hey, you know, if you could give one piece of advice on how an athlete can get faster, what would you tell them? And he said, for the vast majority of the people, rest more. Hmm. And it is so true. I mean, we, we know physiologically we don't get faster by running. We don't get faster, especially by running our bodies into the ground. We get faster when we rest, after we provide that training stimulus. And so that rest is so super critical. And I think in our world, training adults who have careers, who have jobs, lives, families, et cetera, the recovery pieces is really hard for them. Um, most of them probably do not sleep enough. Most of them probably get done with their run. They may spend 10, 15 minutes here, foam rolling, stretching, whatever, but then they get up and they go about their day or they get up and they go take care of their kids, make dinner, et cetera. They don't take that proper time that they need always to really recover appropriately. Sleep is so important. Down weeks are important. Active recovery runs at the appropriate slow Easy paces. Pace, yep. Yeah, so critically important. Um, so my goal here as a coach is to really guide the athlete and force them to ensure they're achieving their proper proper recovery because I want them to be able to achieve their full potential and they're not going to get there if they don't recover appropriately. No doubt. What matters for you in recovery? So, <laughs> so this again has really evolved in um, the book that Christia Schwanden wrote um, and, and the podcast you did with her was really enlightening to me. Um, you know, that, that scientifically, at least, most of the modalities of recovery that we think about um, may not really do much for us. Yep. Now, mentally, if we, if we think they're helpful, then, then maybe they are. I, like you, um, get a massage typically every three weeks. Yep. Um, Nick is, my, uh, is a godsend for me over yep. at... Uh, um, Moose's office. At Moose's yep. office, yep. And so um, I really feel like whether it's what he's doing to help 
remove toxins, increase blood flow. If there's anything to that, I don't know. Maybe it's just <laughs> the idea of laying on a table for an hour yep. and doing nothing but talking to Nick. Um, maybe that's what it is, but whatever, it seems to work for me. So I think that's really important. The other thing that I really, the other two things that I've started playing around with that I think are really important are napping. Um, and I'll credit my, my good friend, my good new friend, Sasha, uh, for this, yeah. um, naps have been something I've started playing around with. In fact, I texted her last night and told her during my kid's soccer game that I lowered my seat back. Well, first of all, I walked out of the house with a pillow. My <laughs> wife looked at me and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you took a nap. I took a in nap. The car. He's got an hour and fifteen minute soccer practice. Yeah, and it's too far away for me to drop him off. Yeah. so we sit there. So sometimes I go for a run during yeah, practice. Yeah. But uh, I was kind of wiped out yesterday afternoon. So took a nap I took car. a pillow. I turned on uh, some sleep music. Yeah, and I closed my eyes, and I got a sixty minute nap, and it was it was absolutely glorious. That's so, fantastic. So thank you, Sasha, for I influencing me. Um, so I think napping is really important. The other thing when getting enough sleep or napping isn't practical, um, I think meditation is something that really works for me. I don't do it enough, but I think, again, gives you that time to just sit and um, kind of get away from the, the fast pace of your life and your world. And, um, it allows me to just think and focus about one thing and one thing only. And so I really try and think about that time is, is a time for me to, to focus on recovering and getting away from kids, job, et cetera. Yeah, I think having a quiet mind, creating space for a quiet mind in your life is really important. And as a coach, I'm aware of that, obviously. I think the float pod experience I had with Sasha actually <laughs> reminded me. Yeah, you kind of scared me off on the float yeah, pod. I was, well, I was willing to yeah, give it a try it, until I listened to your... It's worth a shot, I think, <laughs> once. But, but it did... The one thing I really enjoyed about it, and, and I don't know that I had to be floating to do this, was just the fact that for an hour, I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have my phone with me. I was just quiet yep. by myself. Yep in a dark space thinking. And so it has, it has made me think in moments when I have a little bit of time between something that's maybe not enough to do something, but, but I can just be quiet and meditate or even just try to clear my mind. I'm trying to take those opportunities. So as an example, yesterday I had a Dr. Moose appointment as I normally do every three or four weeks. And and normally I'm sitting there in this chair waiting for him to pop into the room, looking at my phone or doing something. And I didn't know how long he was going to be. But I just put my phone down, closed my eyes, and it ended up being probably 10 minutes before mm-hmm. he got in there. And, and it was just quiet and just focused on my breathing. Didn't really think about anything that I remember, but just had that quiet time and just, Embrace it without the pressure of thinking, oh, I should be answering emails or, oh, I should be doing something. Oh, I should be, because there's always something. And it was nice. And I'm starting to to have those little windows or even, you know, I might be here and have 10 minutes between meetings. And instead of finding something to do for 10 minutes, which I'm not, by, by the way, very good at jumping from task to task, just take 10 quiet minutes instead. Yep. And 
and it doesn't have to necessarily be planned. It can be impromptu like that, but those little moments of just quiet meditation or whatever, I think help reset us, reset the brain, put your body into a better place. So that's something I've been trying to practice more of yeah. because I'm also not somebody who's going to just sit down and meditate, you know, like it doesn't, and maybe I could get there, but I'm not somebody who could schedule an hour meditation right. and go do it. Like, well, that would the way work I've for been, me. the way I've been doing it is there are some apps that are pretty great. Yeah, if you want to try them Mindspace? out, I have used, uh, I have used that and I have used, um, or Headspace. Headspace, um, yeah, sorry. And, and there's one other one. There's Calm. There's a couple others that I've tried. Okay. And yeah, they're great because uh, a lot of them are um, set up so that you can do it by time. So yep. if you have five minutes, you can plug in a five-minute med- guided meditation. Yep. Um, some of them are guided with voices. Some of them just have music. So it allows another um, just kind of white noise to help shut out you know, the outside world. So I played around with yeah, that as well. Speaking of that, I had... You know, Sasha, when we were on talking about the flow pot experience, she mentioned how she was doing this gratitude practice of basically having gratitude for all of her different body parts. And then she worked through those, just totally put her into this Zen space. Somebody commented on that on Twitter about how they did, they were in a a doctor's waiting room like I was and did the same thing laying on the table, just basically going through the body parts and so so she thanked Sasha via Twitter for that and you know again that's something you could do anywhere when you just have a spare moment to be in a quiet place because we're not ever in quiet places yeah but to me the moral with recovery there's there's some there's some basic things that are non-negotiable right with recovery which are sleep non-negotiable absolutely and you can create some sort of semi-sustainable new normal but you're not going to optimize your world until you can get a better sleep so sleep is non-negotiable easy running active rest as you called it non-negotiable absolutely if you want to get faster you can't run fast every day and i also would put decent diet in the non-negotiable category, it doesn't have to be perfect because mine is far from it, but I do think you need to have a balanced diet that's not full of a bunch of junk for recovery purposes. Those to me are non-negotiable. Beyond that, I do think it's a very individual thing. So how do you advise people on finding their recovery routine that works? Yeah, well, I, I think you're absolutely right. Those things are non-negotiable, and if you're not doing those things it's got to start with that right and christy talked about sleep and the importance of sleep and how it's it's easy it's free it's cheap right um and and not only that but it is it is so incredibly important and i don't care how many times you meditate a day or how many naps you take a day you can't make up for for you know a five to six hour evening of sleep um so i think that's absolutely a non-negotiable beyond that I think you're right with the other two pieces. And and I think then it it comes to um, really understanding what works for an athlete. So some athletes, the idea of meditation, to your point, it's just too Zen for them. They can't get into that. And that's fine. Um, I have an athlete, um, Emily Kozell, who's also a a road coach. And she has found that um, there's a, reco- a new recovery lab here in town, Generator Recovery Lab, and she's been a member now 
pretty much since they've opened, probably one of their, their best customers. And um, she has really found that that works for her. She likes carving out that time. She usually goes about three times a week. And she does, they have typically, there's three modalities that they do for recovery. There's contrast bath, there's their infrared sauna, and then the Normatec compression boots. And she tries to do all three of them pretty much every time she goes in. And, and that really works for her. Um, fortunately, her schedule is flexible enough that she can squeeze that in and, and not everyone can. Um, but I think it's important that you really understand that athlete, what they're currently doing, and then um, how they can add in recovery um, yeah, in a way that works you have for to them. encourage them to experiment too. It's like, hey, try some things. Absolutely. If it doesn't work for you, don't do it again. Just had a runner try the float pod thing after <laughs> after she heard the podcast and it did actually work for her. So she yep. she actually got she bought not a membership, but she bought some additional ones at a discount because she got multiple, and that was working for her. Yeah, probably not something I'm going to work into my routine, but I'll still be getting my massages for sure. Right. But I think that's the thing is an athlete you have to experiment. Could be just simply if massage is something you can't do regularly because of price or whatever. Get your own foam rolling routine, right? And spend twenty minutes in front of a Netflix show on the floor, foam, just, on the floor, yeah. foam rolling a couple of nights a week or yeah, whatever it may be, and and just experimenting with those things, and then listening to your body and how you respond. Did that make me feel better? Did it not? If it did, try some more. Yeah. If it didn't, try something else. And I think that's the thing about recovery beyond those those non negotiables I mentioned is that it is a very personal journey. What works for one person isn't going to work for somebody, which is, I think, partly partly why the science can't prove it out because right, right. it is actually more personal than that. Maybe the mind is tied into that and placebo effect and all those things. Who knows? But it doesn't matter if you think yeah. it works. We've been told that it, something actually happens. So, so you got to experiment with that and find what works for you. But if you're not recovering, as you said, I like the way you put it, you, you can't get stronger. That's actually where you get faster. Yep. Yeah. is when you're when, when you're taking things easier. Yeah. The other thing that I may throw in there as as kind of an additional non-negotiable and you and I talked about this yesterday is when you have that big race that that huge goal and you've trained, you know, for a long cycle for that is the recovery time from that after your race, that 2 to 3 to 4 week period is really really critical. And I've seen a lot of athletes who haven't really taken that seriously, gotten right back in it. Yep. And then that's where they get injured, um, you know, and spiral downwards. That's Emily, Emily is another great example of this. She was really worried. Uh, I believe this was last year. She ran um, London and then she was actually traveling for two months in Spain after her London race. And she really didn't want to have to worry about a whole lot of structured running. She didn't yep. know, you know, what access she was going to have to roads and such. And it was vacation for her. So the way we structured it was that was her recovery period. And yep. the first four, four weeks of it were like, if you want to run, have at it, but don't do much. Yep. Um, and, and don't do anything fast and no workouts at all. After that four weeks, then yeah, get a little more running in. Um, but enjoy your vacation and don't stress about it. Don't worry about it too much. Um, and once you get back, we'll get right back into the swing of it. You're not going to lose all your fitness. Yep. Um, and sure enough, that was probably the best thing we could have done for her had we planned it that way. Yeah. Um, she came back 
And yeah, she, she, you know, lost a little bit of fitness. She had a couple of weeks where she was pretty miserable in workouts. Um, but sure enough, she Comes was able back. to pick back up pretty quickly and had another like ridiculous PR 20 something minutes in her next race. So, um, and that isn't just physical. It's also that mental break. Absolutely. And I think so especially important. after a marathon, when you're putting so much into one day, you have to have that, that mental break as well as the physical break where you're just giving yourself a period not to worry about it. Yep. And then only really getting serious again when the fires is lit yep. <laughs> again. Well, and I think one of the, you know, perfect examples uh, from a professional standpoint is Bernard Lagat, right? So he's, uh, kind of the old man of running just ran an amazing PR at, uh, I forget what age he is, 42, somewhere around there. Yeah, 41, 42. Uh, old man Legat, I like to call yeah, him. Still crushing Legat. it. And, you know, one of his secrets is his five weeks of recovery he takes every single year. Every winter, yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, that's allowed him to continue to, to go at it, you know, year after year <laughs> after year. Um, all right. The other thing I would say is the active recovery. I can't stress that enough. I mean, that I I get a lot of athletes who really struggle with the idea of you've got to run slower to get faster. Um, and, 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 and they, you know, then don't listen potentially and go downhill and, and get injured as a result of it. And, um, to me, again, our, our good friend Sasha, when she was in town, really reiterated that for me. I mean, we did recovery runs with her, and she was running <laughs> what, like nine? Nine minute miles, miles on one run, I mostly 839s. Yeah. And, and she's a 232 marathon. Yeah. So can't stress that enough. <laughs> Training like an elite. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel good. Yep. So, yes, there we go. That, those are the four things. I mean, they're, they're a recap in a lot of ways for all of our content on Running Rogue, but you really can't say them too much. And I like hearing your spin on it as well as the examples because I think that's what makes it come to life for people. So to reiterate again for you who might be listening, one, consistency and patience. Two, understanding the athlete as an individual. Three, of course, miles matter, but there are limits. You have to tailor it to what's right for you. And four, recovery is king. That's actually where you get faster. If you do those things, you will get faster. So there you go. There you go. Thank you, Brent, for joining me on this one. This has been a ton of fun. We'll have to have you on again. And thanks for Sasha. Thanks, thanks to Sasha for the nudge Absolutely. to pull you in. This thanks, is really good. Thanks for having me, Chris. There you go, Brent Stein, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed the episode with those examples. Obviously, we recapped a lot of things that I've talked about many times on this show, but repetition never hurts for learning. And I think hopefully some of those examples made some of those principles come to life for you. So again, thanks for Brent. Thanks to Brent for joining me. And of course, thanks to you guys for listening. As always, this has been episode 126 of the Running Rogue podcast. You can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we will talk to you soon.